for those of you who uh, may be visitors uh, to Seven Oaks, whether that's joining us here in the chapel this morning or joining us through the live stream. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Seven Oaks. Um, Now, those of you who read the newsletter and pay attention to these things very carefully um, will recognize that uh, this week we're supposed to have uh, Jamie up in the pulpit again, continuing uh, the series that he's been leading us to in Uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. However, uh, Jamie has fallen ill uh, this week, and it's no insignificant thing. Um, He's been your lead pastor for 10 years, and this is the first time he's ever had to miss a Sunday when he was preaching uh, due to illness. So he's on the mend, um, but uh, do do, uh, give uh, give your prayers uh, for his uh, complete recovery. Um, I'm going to be preaching this morning. Now, those of you who know me um, won't be shocked to hear me say that I'm a little bit of a word nerd. Um, Words uh, uh, interest me a great deal, and I'm particularly interested in some very special categories of unusual words or phrases and expressions in the English language. Uh, Things like spoonerisms or retronyms uh, or neologisms. And already you're thinking, I hate it when a theologian stands up and uses all these theological terms that um, I'm not familiar with. Um, You guys will probably be, um, most likely be familiar with the concept of an oxymoron. Now, an oxymoron is uh, a phrase which seems to have an inherent contradiction built right into it, like the phrase, uh, the jumbo shrimp. Uh, Or um, uh, other examples are fresh frozen vegetables. Or an exact estimate, (laughs) negative growth, unbiased opinion, (laughs) working vacation, and one that's um, quite well known around here, short sermon by Brian Robertson. (laughs) So, um, but the category, uh, there's another category, which is less well known, which are called pleonasms. Pleonasm. Now, a pleonasm is an expression that contains within it an unnecessary redundancy. For instance, the phrase unnecessary redundancy <laughs> is a pleonasm. It says kind of the same thing twice. Other examples of pleonasms are tuna fish, armed gunman, free gift personal friend, past experience, unexpected surprise. These are all pleonasms. They're all phrases which are kind of redundant in the way they're constructed. And this morning, we are going to be talking about um, a pleonasm which you encounter in the Christian life in the church, and that is born-again Christian. Born-again Christian is a pleonasm. It's an unnecessarily redundant phrase. We use it, it's popularly used within the church, uh, as if it refers to a specific subcategory of Christians. But the Bible makes it very clear that there's no such thing as a Christian who isn't born again. To be a follower of Christ is to be born again. And this morning, um, we are going to unpack the most famous passage where this idea that we need to be born again comes up, and that, of course, is the story of Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus. If you want to follow along, we're in the Gospel of John, chapter 3, 
and uh, I'll be starting by reading uh, verses 1 to 4 for us. Now, there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you were doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, Very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. Now Nicodemus is a minor character in the Gospels, but he's a really important character. He only shows up in one of the four Gospels, in John's Gospel, uh, and there he shows up three times. We have this encounter with Jesus in chapter 3. Later in chapter 7, when the religious authorities are planning on essentially lynching uh, Jesus, um, Nicodemus, who is a fairly influential um, church leader himself, um, says, hang on, don't we have such a thing as due process? Do we like condemn a man without trying him first? Um, And then, of course, famously in chapter 19, uh, Jesus is involved in um, uh, dealing with Christ's uh, body in terms of, in terms of um, putting him in the tomb. So we know that he's a Pharisee, he's a religious leader, and he's, he's a leader among Pharisees, he's quite uh, well-respected. And what's happened with Nicodemus is that he has heard about Jesus' ministry, he's heard about the things that Jesus says and does, particularly the things that he does, particularly the miraculous things that Jesus is doing. Um, and he's interested in finding out about that, so he comes to see Jesus at night, um, and he has this fascinating conversation with him. And it's interesting that he starts out that conversation by saying, look, we know that you're from God, because that wasn't the view of all of his uh, colleagues, that wasn't the view of all Pharisees, but, G- but Nicodemus is pretty convinced because of the things that Jesus is able to do, the miracles he's able to perform, that he must be from God. So he says, we know that you're from God. And then an interesting thing happens in the biblical text. Jesus answers his question. Now, Nicodemus hasn't asked a question at this point, but Jesus answers a question that he hasn't asked. And he says, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Now, there's two phrases in that statement um, which are puzzling. They certainly were puzzling to Nicodemus, and and quite frankly, we need to take a look and unpack them. Um, The sentence begs two questions. Number one is, what does Jesus mean by see the kingdom of God? No one can see the kingdom of God. And secondly, what does he mean by born again? Well, in terms of what he means by seeing the kingdom of God, um, Nicodemus probably has an understanding of the idea that God has a people, that God has a kingdom, that God is a sovereign ruler who has subjects who are, who are loyal to him. Um, but in terms of what Jesus is specifically talking about, we get our clues from later on in the passage. Now, I'll be reading a little bit more of the passage for you in a few minutes. But Jesus subsequently goes on to refer to the idea of seeing the kingdom of God as meaning essentially the same thing as enter the kingdom of God. And that makes sense. If you want to know what the inside of something looks like, you have to enter it. So Jesus essentially is saying, no one can enter the kingdom of God 
unless they're born again. And he also goes on to make it clear that this is connected to receiving eternal life, participating in eternal life. So in essence, in the ordinary language that we as, as, as uh, Christians use, he's talking about salvation. He's talking about um, the idea of being saved. He, as much as is saying, no one can, can, can receive salvation, can be saved without being born again. Now, these expressions, see the kingdom of heaven, enter the kingdom of heaven, um, uh, be saved, they're used all throughout all four of the Gospels, and they're used fairly interchangeably, and what they all generally mean is, have your relationship with God made right and whole again. Now, this, the idea of restoration of right relationship with God, is an idea that would be very familiar to Nicodemus as a Pharisee, because for the Jews, the Jews understood themselves, they'd been, they'd been taught by God that they were God's chosen people, that they had a special relationship with God, but that that relationship frequently, routinely could go off the rails. And by the first century, by Jesus' time, what they understood is that making that relationship right required a great deal of moral behavior on their part. It required them to do certain things, to obey certain laws, to live up to certain moral standards. But Nicodemus senses, you can tell that from from the way that he's come to Jesus, Nicodemus senses there's got to be more to it than this. There has to be more to this business of our relationship with God than just the 613 rules that we're supposed to follow. Because I follow the rules and have this sense that this isn't, this, isn't, this isn't the whole story of my relationship with God. In that sense, Nicodemus is very similar to another character who shows up in the Gospels, uh, who's referred to as the, a rich young ruler. Now, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all in their Gospels, uh, give the account of the rich young ruler who comes to see Jesus. Nicodemus' conversation with Jesus and the rich young rulers are very similar. Right? Because in both cases, they're people who have heard about Jesus. They're both people who believe that Jesus is from God. And they're both people who come to Jesus to say, look, what else must I do to make my relationship with God right? What can I do more than simply following the, the moral codes? What more can I do to make my relationship with Jesus, with God, right? And here's the stunning thing. What Jesus effectively says to both the rich young ruler and the other accounts and to Nicodemus, what he effectively says is, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you, Nicodemus, can do to make your relationship with God right and whole. And the way he communicates that is he he describes it as in terms of a, a physical impossibility, Right? You remember that in the case of the rich young ruler, Jesus says to his disciples, it's going to be harder for a guy like that, it's going to be harder for a rich young ruler, to, a rich man, to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to pass through an eye of a needle. Well, that's not physically possible. So Jesus is effectively saying, it's impossible. In fact, in that account, Jesus' disciples say, then it's impossible. And Jesus says, yes, yes, it is impossible. And similarly here, He physically describes being born again, and Nicodemus rightly perceives and and 
he comments on the fact that that's impossible. Uh, a grown person can't go back into their mother's womb and be born again. And Jesus says, yes, it is impossible. And in both cases, what Jesus is there to say, particularly is there to say to Nicodemus, is it's not possible for you. It's not possible for people to do, but it is possible with God because God makes the impossible possible. So, <clears throat> Jesus tells Nicodemus, you must be born again. Nicodemus says, that seems impossible. What do you mean? And Jesus unpacks it a little bit more for him. And we're now going to take a look at John uh, 3, verses 5 to 8. Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Now, there's a really important point that you, we have to be careful not to miss in this passage, right? Jesus isn't just saying, oh, the, the kind of rebirth, being born again, I'm talking about, it's a spiritual thing. It has to do with like spiritual stuff. Like it has to do with your spirit. What he's saying is, it has to do with my spirit. It has to do with the spirit of God. It has to do with the Holy Spirit. Being born again is a matter of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is a critical piece of theological understanding. This passage is rightly famous because there's a critical piece of theological understanding here. When we're born again, we're born again by the agency, by the activity of the Holy Spirit. Our salvation is operationalized by the activity of the Spirit when we receive the Spirit within us, right? We know that when we believe in Jesus we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit immediately begins the process of renovating, of making us over new. We get made into new creatures by the Spirit within us. So it's through the presence of the Spirit that we experience new life in Christ. You will see this expression, new life in Christ, throughout the New Testament. That's what we're talking about, Jesus says, when I say you have to be born again. That's how you get born again, is that you now experience this new, different life through your union with me, through the Holy Spirit. It's the presence of the Spirit within us that makes us Christians. And that's why there's no such thing as a um, not born again Christian. So, <clears throat> these are, this is, this is, difficult theological stuff. And it's challenging uh, for Nicodemus, right? Jesus, in essence, is saying, in order to be brought into right relationship with God, you have to have the Holy Spirit enter you and begin to recreate you in God's image. And Nicodemus finds that this is a difficult concept. He essentially says to Jesus, how can this be? Like, what are you talking about? How 
how can this thing that you're talking about happen? I don't understand. That sounds to me like it can't be right. And so then Jesus goes even farther in explaining what he's talking about. This is in John chapter 3, verses 9 to 16. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and do you not understand these things? Very truly I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Jesus or as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his own one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. That handful of verses has, um, at one time, just for the fun of it, I counted up, I think there's 20 good sermons. In, uh, in that passage um, that leads up to, to John 3.16. Um, if you'll forgive me, though, I'm going to give you a brief summary of what Jesus says or what I, what I, I think the a good understanding of Scripture and the context um, tells us that essentially Jesus is saying. What he says is, look, Nicodemus, of course you can't quite see and understand this. No human really can see and understand it. But I understand it. I know what I'm talking about because I've been in heaven. I'm already in the eternal kingdom. I'm one with the Father, and so I'm an authority on this stuff. So I get that it's difficult for you to understand, but I understand it because of who I am and where I've come from. And he said, and I came here to bring to you and to everyone the truth, the reality about who God is. Now, he says, not everyone's going to receive it. Not everyone's going to understand it. Not everyone's going to want to understand it. Not everybody's going to want to embrace it. But it's the truth. I came here so that I could make your relationship with God right again. You, you, in essence, came to me saying, yeah, yeah, I know all about following the laws, but what more must I do to have right relationship with God? And Jesus effectively says, you can't do anything or even really understand how to make that relationship right, but don't worry, you've got me. I came for the express purpose of me making your relationship with God right again. And he says... Um, in this bittersweet, you know, early in the gospel, telegraphing of what's coming. And he says, and the way in which that's going to happen is going to mean that I'm going to have to die on the cross. Now, we don't know if this helped Nicodemus. We don't know. Nicodemus understood better when Jesus was finished speaking. John doesn't tell us anything about what Nicodemus sort of thought or did uh, immediately after this conversation. In the case of the rich young ruler, we kind of get this picture of him, him essentially walking away saying, that's too tough of a choice for me. We don't know what happens with Nicodemus, right? 
But we do know that this isn't easy teaching. It's not easy to understand and it's not easy to embrace. And I think we can say that we, his disciples, have subsequently for the last 2,000 years also struggled with the concept of what do we mean by you need to be born again. And I think the church has come up with, I just want to quickly canvas three bad ways in which we as the church, we as Jesus' um, imperfect followers, there are three ways, bad ways in which we have engaged with this idea. And I would summarize these as saying, we've tried to contain it. We've tried to contain the idea of being born again. We've tried to postpone it. And we've tried to ignore it. So what do I mean by those? What do I mean by we try to contain it? Well, listen, our understanding, our theological understanding is that, that um, there comes a point in time in which we receive salvation, a point in time in which we become followers of Jesus Christ, a point in time in which God gifts us with the Holy Spirit. We believe in point-in-time conversion. We believe that there's, there, it's possible for people to be outside of life with Christ by their own choice, and that there comes a time when the person is brought into that relationship with Christ. And because it makes sense that there's a point in time in which it happens, we, of course, in the church have asked the question, okay, when does that happen? When does that switch get flicked? When, when do we receive the Spirit? When do we become born again? When do we become saved? Now, Jesus, in his answer to Nicodemus, makes reference to the need to be born again of the Spirit and of water. And we have, the church has over 2,000 years, interpreted that in a way which gives a very high sacramental value to water baptism. So we generally in the church over the years have understood that there is this spiritual baptism that happens to us, but it's also important for us to follow Christ's example and experience water baptism. The idea of water baptism is, is one of the few completely unifying beliefs of all churches and denominations. All practice baptism, water baptism, one sort or another. Tragically or challengingly, over the 2,000 years, different churches, different parts of the church, different denominations or traditions have developed this into the idea that it is water baptism that saves us that you cannot be born again, you cannot be in Christ, you cannot be saved, you cannot achieve eternal life unless and until water baptism takes place. And of course, this is a really, really challenging and divisive, I think, misunderstanding of, of what Scripture teaches, right? Because, well, there's a couple of problems. One is, in its most extreme form, there have been churches and traditions who have, who have separated what you believe from what's happened to you. So they have the belief that if you've been baptized, you're born again into Christ, regardless of whether you believe that Christ is the Son of God, regardless of whether you know Christ personally. The mere physical act of being baptized saves you, which is a problematic, I think, misunderstanding of the theology. Um, and the other problem with it is 
Once the church decides that you're only a Christian, you're only born again, you're only a follower of Jesus Christ, you only have eternal life if you're baptized, and the people who decide who gets baptized is the church, you now give the church control. You give fallible church leaders like me control over who gets into heaven and who doesn't, who gets to be in the kingdom of God or not. So I think that approach, trying to narrow down and contain the idea of being born again to a specific ritual um, or sequence of events that have to take place um, is a wrong response. The second thing that we do is we postpone it, right? Now, a lot of the language around salvation, both both, uh, in other places in Scripture and even in the words of Jesus, talks about salvation in terms of... um, eternal life, and of being rescued from future judgment, right? Plus, we have this promise from Jesus that he's coming again. And as a result of those theological ideas, which are connected to each other, a second thing that we've done in the church with the idea of being born again is we've really focused really, really hard. Not every part of the church does this, but some parts of the church do this, and some of us were raised in parts of the church that do this. Really, really focuses this on the idea of salvation, being born again, eternal life, as something that's going to happen later when we die. The focus is on... Look, all of this is going to happen, all this is going to be operationalized, all this is going to kick in, all this is going to come into play when I die. And all of our focus, when when we're saved, when we become Christians, when we become followers of Jesus Christ, when we're born again, all of our focus is on, yeah, good, now I've got my ticket to heaven. Now, I'm sure that I'm getting on the train when the train leaves the station later. And the problem with that is... If you take that kind of theological reasoning far enough, what you end up with is this, is this idea that all that we need to change is our status. We don't need to change ourselves. We're not looking for Christ to change us. We're just looking for Christ to change our destination. And that, I think, um, is, is a gross member misrepresentation of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about being born again into new life in him. And ironically, ironically, remember I said at the beginning of this that there are people within the broad church, church history, you know, the culture of the church in the world, there are people who refer to themselves or referred to as born-again Christians. Sadly, it is principally among people who confidently call themselves born-again Christians, it's among those parts of people in those parts of the church that it's most common for them to completely ignore the idea of being born again now in favor of putting all of our attention on the idea that being born again is just a, a way of talking about, you know, what our, what our eternal destination is going to be. Ironically, Too many born-again Christians pay little attention to the idea of being born again. The third thing that we do with this idea of being born again is we we kind of ignore it, or I I might say we sort of 
We sort of relocate it. And what I mean by that is, you're all familiar with the idea of people who have personal, like, who have personal space issues, right? Like, they just don't like other people being really close or inside. They like to have their own, like to have lots of room, and that kind of thing. Well, many, many Christians, or would-be Christians, have a personal space issue about letting the Holy Spirit live inside of them. They don't like, really, this idea that the Holy Spirit is in here. They love the idea that the Holy Spirit is out there, that the Holy Spirit is around us, that the Holy Spirit is, you know, is in the congregation, the Holy Spirit is in the room, that the Holy Spirit is, is moving through the earth doing things. But they're not actually all that comfortable with the idea that the Holy Spirit is actually inside doing renovations, right? Because what faith we practice, what um, confessional beliefs we have, what things we believe in our faith, what actions we take, those are all things which we have control of. I have control of myself. I have control of... Um, my beliefs, I have control of my actions. And I'd kind of like to maintain control of those things um, and sort of interact with the Holy Spirit at an arm's length as an outside party who I'm willing to negotiate with. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. It's a very popular idea in Western culture because Western culture is all about uh, the individual. It's about individualism. It's about individual self-determination. And so it's not surprising that Western Christianity, Christianity in North America, um, is full of people who like this idea of the Holy Spirit being out there. They just don't like the idea of the Holy Spirit being in here. But unfortunately, that idea that I maintain my individuality, but I interact with the Holy Spirit, um, is not the worldview that is that is put forward in Scripture. It's not what the Bible teaches. To sum these things up, I would say that a lot of the time, we're comfortable with Jesus at a distance, right? We're comfortable with the idea that Jesus is going to be at a distance from us. We're willing to recognize him as an important part of the past, right? We're willing to be excited about the events of Jesus' life. We're willing to be excited about the resurrection. We're, we're excited about all the things that Jesus did 2,000 years ago, right? And we're very excited about what he did when we first came to believe. We're very excited about what happened when we became believers and we received conversion and, and we were baptized. We're very excited about those things that Jesus did in the past, and we're very excited about all the things that we think Jesus is going to do and the Spirit are going to do in the future. We're excited about heaven, right? We're excited about eternal life. We're willing to recognize that God. And we're willing to recognize, you know, God in heaven. We're willing to recognize, we're very comfortable with the idea of Jesus kind of up there at the right hand of God praying for us. But too often we're less willing to recognize his present, right now, saving, transforming presence inside of us.
the disciples uh, who knew him when, during the incarnation, when he walked on earth and was a, was a, 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 a human, just like the rest of us, you know, a, a creature of flesh, and the disciples got to walk with him for three or four years. But as it came to the Last Supper, they were really anxious and upset because he was giving hints that he was leaving, and they were really anxious about the idea of, hang on, you've taught us a bunch of stuff, you've opened up our eyes, you've given us a bunch of understanding, you've even left us with certain you know, powers in terms of the ability to heal people or drive out demons, but whoa, whoa, how are we going to manage this if you go away, like if you're not here with us? That seems like a really daunting idea to us. And in particularly John's account of the Last Supper, what Jesus does during the Last Supper is specifically address the idea that I'm physically going away, and here's, though, what that's going to look like. Here's, here's how that's going to play out. And what Jesus says to them is, you're concerned that I'm going away, but you don't need to be, and here's why. In John chapter 14, verses 15 to 19, he says to them, If you love me, keep my commands. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to help you and be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. I'd like to call up the worship team now as, uh, as we conclude. Nicodemus um, was a man who sincerely desired to have right relationship with God, and he was doing all the things. He was doing all the things that he was supposed to do as a Jew, as a, as a Pharisee, as a, 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 a person who, who wanted to serve God. He was doing all of the things, but he still wasn't sure that he had a handle on it all. Now, Christian life can be hard, right? It is hard to understand the theology. You may not have you know, realized that 35 minutes ago, but now you're thinking, this theology is really confusing. I'm going to stop listening to Brian, right? But the, the, it's hard to understand all of this stuff. It's hard to know what to do. It's hard to know what are we supposed to do, what are we not supposed to do. And even when we know what we're not supposed to do, it is hard to overcome the desire to do something else. And even if you know what to do, you think you know what to do, and you, and you earnestly desire to do the thing, it's still hard to have the power to do those things. And in the midst of all of this, it is really hard not to have a lot of doubt about all of this. And it's hard not to have a lot of fear about it. And what Jesus says to Nicodemus and says to us constantly through the scriptural accounts, through his words and his actions, what he says to us now through our spirit is this. He says, look, if this whole thing were going to be up to you, 
you'd be right to be <laughs> doubtful and fearful. Because if it was going to be, if I had left it all up to you, you'd be hooped. You would fail, right? But that's not what I'm doing. What he says to Nicodemus, what he said to his disciples later, what he says to us now is, I'm with you in the here and now. My spirit dwells within you, and it's not just that I'm, you know, a guest. I'm transforming you. You want to be more like me. I'm making you more like me. You want to be closer to the Father. I'm making you closer to the Father. You want to love the people around you more. I'm equipping you and building you into a person who loves the people around him or her better. In me, you have been born again because in me you are already living in the eternal life, which is the gift for me. In essence, he says, don't be afraid because I am with you to the end of the age.